Thank you, Brother Mark, and thanks for the opportunity to, to be able to be here to share with you. We love coming to Living Water. Uh, Bonnie and I have both told each other a few times, if we lived anywhere near here, uh, this would probably be our church. We, we just love the fellowship and the atmosphere here. It, it means a lot to us, and we greatly appreciate your, uh, your help and your partnership with us in, in our ministry. Uh, it's been said a couple of times, but the first time we met with you with Living Water was about 20 years ago. I think the church was only about two or three years old at the time, meeting over in a high school somewhere here in town. And uh, we just fell in love with the church then, and the church has been supporting us ever since then, and we greatly appreciate that. But you've helped in other ways. You've sent three or four people over to East Asia to help in various projects. Uh, John Seavey has been there. In fact, I think John has the record for the number of trips that he's taken over to East Asia to help us. And we've just greatly appreciated each person who's been there to be part of the work. And God has used a number of different people to accomplish his purpose in the lives of church leaders in East Asia. Uh, we have some plans in the future. We're uh, looking at uh, traveling to the Middle East again in October to do some training with a group of national missionaries who are missionary trainees. They're getting ready, getting their training so they can go out throughout that region of the Middle East to, to preach the gospel and to try to lead people in their understanding of who Christ is and what that means. And so we, uh, we look forward to being part of that. Uh, we also are planning on traveling to Spain in November to do some member care with a group of missionaries there. And uh, we just greatly appreciate what God has laid before us. I don't know of any better way to spend your life than just being part of what God is doing and being uh, a, an active part of his work. Uh, this morning, we're going to be going through the passage that we just read from Isaiah chapter 49. And so if you want to keep, if you have something with the Bible on it, if you want to keep it there, we'll be referring to several of those verses that we just read in verses 8 through 18. In addition to our ministry with uh, our mission uh, overseas, we're also part of a member care team. The team has about 23, 24 people on it, and each person on the team sort of has their own focus, their own main way that they're engaged in caring for other missionaries. And uh, our way is primarily through shepherding and, uh, and counseling of fellow, fellow missionaries. And one of the things that I've found in doing a lot of counseling with other teammates, uh, one of the things I've found is that it is a lot easier to teach counseling than it is to do it. Um, there are a lot of struggles there. One couple that I've been working with, I'm going to call them Bill and Mary. And uh, Bill and Mary live in... Ohio. Uh, their story is not a lot different from ours. Bill was a pastor, and then for about the last 20, 25 years, he's been with our mission. Bill and Mary both have a medical background, and most of their ministry with uh, missions has been in a hospital in, uh, in Africa. But in addition to that, uh, since they've come back to the States, Mary has led several medical mission teams to Africa, the Middle East, and that whole region to care for needs and use that as an opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel. Uh, don't tell them I said this, but between Bill and Mary, Mary is really the dynamic one. She is the outgoing one, uh, personable, and uh, not that Bill isn't, but 
she is just a very competent and strong woman. Uh, my wife is as well, and I respect that. But about a year ago, I was asked to start working with them, and I was a little surprised when I met them online about a year ago to find that Mary uh, was almost without expression on her face, and her communication was very uh, kind of stumbling. It was hard for her to, to talk. And a few weeks after we started meeting together, she was diagnosed with a form of dementia that uh, affects your muscles and affects your ability to communicate. A lot of people call the disease that she has the long goodbye. And that has been their experience for the last couple of years. Uh, I talked with Bill just a couple of weeks ago, and he said that now Mary has stopped even being able to talk. She has to write everything out that she wants to communicate. Bill and Mary both are trusting God. They both are making a, a godly response to their trial and their suffering. But I've found that as I've talked with them, I find their situation especially heartbreaking to me personally. Most of the time when I do counseling, I can go from one case to the next, and I don't take a lot of it in personally. Um, I'm able to move on usually, but when I finish a session with them, I have to take a break. I have to recover. Uh, I almost have to counsel myself. I've found their situation to be a particularly heartbreaking, difficult situation. In many ways, I see their situation as probably one of the worst kinds of trial because it is just ongoing. They have had the elders of their church come and anoint her with oil and pray for healing, but God hasn't healed her. And without the direct dramatic intervention of God, uh, this is a situation that is not going to improve. It is a trial that just keeps on going, one of the worst kinds of suffering. What can Bill and Mary do? What should they do? How would God lead them in their response? Well, I think they need the truth that we're going to look at today from Isaiah chapter 49. As I talk about their story, or as you think about trial and difficulty that you've been through, maybe some of you can relate. Maybe not the same kind of trial, but something that is beyond your control and for which you really don't see a solution. What do you do when you're in that situation? How can you use that painful trial to help you actually develop and strengthen your confidence in God. Well, it was the same thing that the nation of Israel needed in chapter 49. And when we read chapter 49, verses 8 through 18, we are breaking into the middle of a story. And if you were to go back and read chapter 48, you will find that the nation of Israel has been suffering. They have been suffering extremely. This has been dark days for the nation of Israel. Isaiah is writing primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah about this, and they are going through deep suffering. But the nation of Israel is suffering not because of a disease, 
not because of something that has happened to them. They are suffering because of their own sin. Because in their history, they have stubbornly refused to listen to or even worship God. And the suffering they're going through is a direct result of that kind of rebellion against God. It's not something that happened to them. But even still, God makes the same promises. I will keep my covenant. I will keep all of my promises. I will never forget you. And if God can make that a promise to someone who has wandered away from him, that's true. But it's also true for those of us who are just going through difficult, painful trial. This is a painful time in their history. But let's go back further and understand how this message fits in with God's, with Isaiah's book. Isaiah is writing the words, you understand, but they are coming directly from God himself. So that the words we read are the words of God. Um, God was influencing Isaiah as he wrote these words. But Isaiah was not just taking notes. He was not just recording the words of God. Isaiah was actually writing this message out of his own heart, his own desire to communicate, his own style of communication. And that's really the miracle of Scripture, isn't it? That both can be happening at the same time. Isaiah is writing from his own heart, but at the same time, God is, is influencing and leading Isaiah so that the, the words that Isaiah used has actually come from God himself. He's talking about a painful time in their history. When he's writing, this is just a short time before they're going to experience captivity, before King Nebuchadnezzar and his bar armies from Babylon are going to show up at the outdoors of Jerusalem and attack and then carry most of the nation back to Babylon as slaves. They are entering They've been through great suffering, but they're entering a time of even greater suffering that they're going to have to endure. Throughout this message of Isaiah, God is challenging his people to a higher view of God because it's clear their view of God is not very high. And that's important because our view of God really defines the way that we live our lives, defines the way that we go through temptation. It defines the way that we endure trial and suffering. It defines the priorities that we set for our lives. The way we see God defines all of that. So what is important for these people is to increase, to raise their view of God in their own hearts. Reading through the whole book of Isaiah is sort of like taking a trip from eastern Washington to western Washington. You read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, and it's like driving through the desert of Washington. Everything's brown, no trees, just bleak. And that's kind of what the first 39 chapters are like. God is explaining to Israel what they're going to have to go through because of their sin. Then you come to chapter 40. And chapter 40 is like coming to the Cascade Mountains. You're at the peak, at the top. And there on Mount Rainier, you get to see the greatness of God the majesty of God. In that one chapter, we see it is the mountain height of the book of Isaiah. 
And then as you go on in chapters 41 through 66, it's like we've come into the green part of the state. Things are coming alive again. And Isaiah begins to talk about restoration. Yes, they have to go through chastisement, but they're dealing with a God who is infinitely great. And because of God's greatness, they can look forward to complete, total restoration, where they will again enjoy the presence of God and the covenant that God has made them. They will enjoy the fulfillment of all of His promises. And the passage we're looking at this morning fits into that third section, the restoration of Israel. God wants Israel to recognize His role in all of this. They're not just having bad luck. They're not just living around bad people. They're living out the priority and the work of God in their lives. That is his role. God is using all of this to accomplish his purpose in the lives of his people. And when we recognize that, when we see God as ultimately in control of all of this, that's when we begin to recognize that we need to have confidence. We can have trust in who God is. So if I could boil my whole message down this morning to a couple of sentences, these would be the sentences. God leads us to resist using our current trial to determine our beliefs about him. Instead, we use the revealed words of God to interpret our current trial. If you walk out of here convinced of that, I will rejoice. So this morning, I want to focus on three questions that I think will help us evaluate our confidence in God when we're going through a difficult time. And the first question is, what do you believe about God? And I think God is dealing with that here in verses 8 through 12. But the first phrase of verse 8, we read, thus says the Lord. Now let's stop right there. Thus says the Lord. We see this often in Scripture. We see those words pretty often, and it is easy for us to read that phrase and just keep on going without really stopping to think about what that means. But I want to take a minute to stop and think about this. The words you're about to read in verse 8 have come directly from God. These are God's words. He is revealing this statement in verse 8 to us. It comes directly from God. And it is that direct statement in verses 8 through 12 that should control our beliefs about God, not the other way around. We take our beliefs, we take our assumptions from the revelation of God, from thus says the Lord. Most of my counseling with other missionaries is uh, about some kind of trial or difficulty that people are going through. That's usually the topic. And one of the questions that I ask almost always is, what was God doing when you went through what you went through, when you went through this difficult time, or today as you're going through this difficult time, what was God doing at that moment? 
And the, question, the answer I usually get is, uh, I don't know. So I encourage them to think a little more about it and ask them maybe some more questions to kind of direct their thinking. And then often people will start saying, well, I guess he wants me to be patient or uh, somehow he wants me to grow or he wants me to learn never to do this again. And sometimes I think that may be part of what God is doing, but that's guesswork. Right? We're, we're looking at our suffering and we're saying, well, I think this is what God is maybe doing. And we may be right, but it's guesswork. We're trying to figure something out. So what I usually will do next is ask them to take the next couple of weeks and find four or five direct statements in the Word of God that tell you what God was doing when you were going through your suffering. What was He doing? It's a struggle to find them, but... That's where we find hope and comfort in the presence of God. It's when our beliefs about God come from what he's revealed to us, not from our own guesswork or our own interpretation of the circumstances we're in. Well, let's keep on going. In verse 8, would you notice the time frame? He makes two references to the time frame. He talks about the day of... um, a day of favor and a day of salvation, a day of favor and a day of salvation. I believe, this is my own interpretation, but I believe that Isaiah is talking about a time that was in the future. They certainly were not in a day of favor or a day of salvation when he was writing these words. They were under the chastisement of God. They were in a time of suffering. And they still are. As far as I see, this is a day that is still future, a day of favor and a day of salvation. He's talking about the future, something that is going to happen. And then notice what he says in each of those times. He said, I have answered you. I have helped you. He's talking about the future, but he's using the past tense to describe what he's doing. This is coming but I have helped you, I have answered you. And God does this a few times in Scripture where he describes something in the future as if it has already happened. God is, I think, literally saying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, but I've already done it. It's already done in my mind. God is so sure and so definite about this promise that he describes it as if it has already happened. That's confidence. That's a definite sense that this promise is going to be fulfilled. He will help us. He will answer us. And in his mind, it's already done. That's the kind of belief that that will help us center our thoughts in a time of difficulty. His promise is that sure. And because he's already done this, he can go on in verse 8 to say, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. Then would you go down to verse 10? When you see verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guard them, guide them. 
Yeah, that probably looks fairly familiar to you because it, it, that's kind of how we describe heaven, isn't it? When we get to heaven, this is going to be our experience. And we do that because this verse is quoted in Revelation chapter 7, where John is talking about crowds of people, not just Jewish people, but all kinds of people coming out of a time of great tribulation, standing in the presence of God, and this is what it said. This is now going to be their experience in heaven. God is going to bring joy and comfort. The message that I see here in verses 8 through 12 is that your experience, your current painful situation is not your destiny. It may take the rest of your life, but it is not your destiny. This is not what God created you for. God did not create you to live in a world under the curse of sin. He did not create you to live in a body under the curse of sin or to have a heart and mind that is redeemed but still responds to temptation and sin. That's not your destiny. Okay, your destiny is a completely redeemed, renewed mind and body in Christ. And regardless of how long we suffer under our current trial and painful situation, we need to remember this is not my destiny. This is not what God created me for. It is my experience, and God has brought me here. He's leading me through it, but this is not where things are going to end. God is going to help. He's going to resolve the situation. You see, the temptation is for us to spend our time thinking about how can I solve my problem? How can I make things better in my life? And it's not bad to think about those things, but, or maybe how could I have avoided this? What could I have said to resolve things or make things turn out better? And instead of thinking about that, let's shift our thinking and begin asking ourselves, according to God's revelation, according to the specific statements God has made, what is he doing right now? Who is he right now? And I'll give you just a couple of examples. He is your shepherd. Through times of suffering and difficulty, he is your shepherd. He is leading you through that painful experience. And he's leading you somewhere. He's leading you to joy and peace and calmness. And it may be when you get to heaven that you experience that, but that's where he is leading you. That is your destiny if you're in Christ. What do you believe about God? A second question. How, how do you respond to trial? Would you look at verses 13 and 14? <clears throat> God is speaking still, and he says in verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. As you read verses 13 and 14, you can see that there are two opposite responses to suffering and difficulty. And God is favoring one of those responses. He is calling you to verse 13. A commitment to worship. That's where God is leading us through our difficulty. He is leading us to singing, exulting, breaking forth in singing. And he's saying not just people, 
but all of creation. And again, this is in the future, but there is coming a time when all of creation will be rejoicing in the presence and work of God. Where the mountains, the rivers, uh, the people, the heavens, all of creation exalts and breaks forth into singing and rejoices in the presence of God. And until we literally live in that day, this is what we practice. We walk through our times of difficulty with the same commitment to worship. You'll notice in verse 13 that there's something missing here. Uh, There's no mention of the problem being solved. Our worship is not based on our problems being solved, on things turning out well. Our worship is based on the person of God. Our worship is based on who God is and what he's doing. And God tells us what he's doing in verse 13. He has promised compassion. He has promised comfort. And he says it in the same way. I've already comforted you. I'm looking at this as if it is already done. And because I've already comforted you, I will always have compassion on you. You can count on that. That's what leads us to worship, is focusing on what God is doing and who he is as he has revealed himself in Scripture. There is a second response, which unfortunately, probably most of us here are familiar with as well. In verse 14, he goes on, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You see, we have a choice. We can choose to worship in response to who God is and what he's doing, or we can choose to respond by committing to our feelings, the way things feel today, by committing to our interpretation of our experience, of our painful trial that we're going through. I think it's kind of interesting as you read through this passage that God didn't ask Israel for a response. Zion or Israel, the people that he's speaking to here, they literally interrupted the message of God to say this, but I have been forgotten. God has forsaken me. This is how heavy it is for these people. This is how much this thought of having been forgotten by God is dominating their thinking, their interpretation of what is going on. They're using their feelings, they're using their experience to define who God is and what he's doing. He is a God who forgets his people, who forsakes his people. And I've had a lot of people tell me that. This is my experience. Yes, I know God has promised that he is Emmanuel, he is my shepherd, he's always there. I I know those promises, but this is my experience. And my experience has more authority, more meaning than the revealed promises of God. And that's what needs to shift if we're going to heal in our time of suffering. Many of us may feel the same way. I hear this a lot, and I think this a lot. I know the Bible says this, but my experience tells me that. Third question. How can we grow 
in our confidence in God? How can we shift from committing to the way I feel about this, the way I interpret my problems, over to where now I have confidence and trust in the promises of God? How can I make that shift? God gave us three promises in verses 15 through 18 that I think will help us with this. First, he said, I will not forget you, verse 15. I will not forget you. I I think probably most of us here in this room can identify with verse 14. Yes, I have been forgotten. I feel like God has forsaken me. Now, in the past or in the future, this thought often comes to mind. Well, how does God respond to it? I've heard somewhere that God is a wonderful counselor. He is an example on how to do it. And so God approaches Israel after they're saying, I've been forgotten, I've been forsaken. God doesn't criticize them for saying that. He doesn't tell them they shouldn't think that way. He doesn't tell them to rejoice anyway. Uh, He does not tell them just stop it. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, God asks them a simple question that is directed toward their way of thinking, their heart. And the question he asks there in verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Simple question. What is the answer to that question? Well, all of us want to say no. A mother could not forget her child, her newborn especially. A mother could not refuse to have compassion on a child that has just been born. That's what we want to think. And we want to think that because I'm sure nobody in this room would refuse to have compassion on their child. That's the normal way of being a mother. Well, what is the answer? God gives us the answer in verse 15. He says, even these may forget. A mother can forget. And we know that mothers sometimes do forget their newborn child, and sometimes do refuse to show compassion to their newborn. We know that does happen. It's rare, but it can happen, and it does happen. In most of our English versions, it says it pretty softly. Even these may forget, but in the original text, it's much more definite. Yes, they will forget. It will happen. Then notice what God says next. He says, yet I will not forget you. Even if your mother was awesome, God is not comparing himself to your mother. He is contrasting himself. He is saying, your mother was awesome, but I am even more awesome. Your mother maybe did have compassion on you and loved you and cared for you, Your mother does that more and sooner than anyone else will. Uh, If anyone would have compassion, it would be your mother. But God is saying, I have even greater compassion. I have infinitely greater compassion than even your mother had in your life. That's how definite we can be that God will not forget us. This also is just my interpretation, but I don't think God was promising 
not to forget. I don't think he was saying, I promise I will not forget you. I think he was making a simple statement of fact. It is impossible for me to forget you. That could never happen. Because of who God is, he could never forget his children. That's how definite this promise is. It would be impossible. God will always remember you. He will never forget you. He made a second promise in verse 16. He said, I have engraved, uh, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. And this is why you can depend on my steadfast, unchanging love. Because I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What was God talking about? Back in ancient times, back in the the days in which Isaiah was living, uh, it was fairly common for a household servant to have a tattoo or some kind of a marking of his master. Uh, That was very common. Uh, And it would be on their hand or somewhere else on their body, but there would always be this mark of their master. And maybe that's the idea that Isaiah has, but that's not what he's saying here. This is not the slave engraving his master's name. It's the opposite of that. It is the master engraving his slave's name on his hand, which is something that never, ever happened in human life. And he's not talking about a tattoo. Now, I've heard that getting a tattoo hurts, which is why I don't have any. Right? I live my life as carefully as I can to avoid as much pain as possible. I've also heard that you can change a tattoo or get rid of it, which hurts even more, I understand, but you can change it if you change your mind later on, I think. But that's not what Isaiah or God is talking about here either. He's not talking about a tattoo. He's talking about engraving into your hand the name of your slave, your servant. And engraving in your hand sounds just like it sounds. It means exactly what it sounds like. It is taking a tool, an instrument, a sharp knife or a chisel and literally digging into a person's hand with the name of his servant. You might remember this, but after Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the dead, and then he appeared to his disciples, Thomas wasn't there. He gave them their commission to go out and make disciples, and it was about a week later when he appeared to them again, and this time Titus was, I mean Thomas was in their presence. Thomas had made the statement to the other disciples before Jesus appeared to him. The disciples told him, told Thomas they had seen Jesus. And what did Thomas say? Right? Unless I can see the nail marks and put my hand in his wound, I will never believe. So Jesus made a specific appearance to the disciples when Thomas was there. And without being asked, Jesus invited Thomas to come and see his scar and to put his hand in the wound. I think that may have been what God was referring to when he said, I'm going to engrave my servant's name in my hand. Uh, 
our hand, our name is engraved in our master's hand because of the gospel. How would we know? How would we have confidence that our name is in his hand? It's because Jesus has already taken the ultimate step of coming down to the earth, of living around people for a lifetime as God and as man at the same time. Living around people who could watch him, who could see that he never did sin. Unlike any other human being, he was perfect. Anyone who looked honestly at what Jesus was doing, what he was saying, how he was living his life, understood this is not just a man. This is God himself living among us. And then at the perfect point in time, Jesus calmly walked to Jerusalem to face the cross. He stood on trial before Pontius Pilate and others and came out of that suffering, enduring the torture of our sin. Going to the cross, and yes, people put him on the cross, they put him to death, but it was his plan. It was his voluntarily submitting to that and dying there in full payment for all of our sin. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was literally absorbing all of the wrath and the judgment of God over sin on himself. He died. He was put in a tomb, proving that he, yes, he really did die. He was three days in the tomb, and then he walked out of the tomb alive, proving that God was completely, perfectly satisfied with the sacrifice that Jesus made for all of our sin. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that he was seen by more than 500 people, all of whom knew that Jesus had died and now was alive. He rose again, he demonstrated himself before people again, and then went back to heaven, sitting now at the right hand of God, again proving that he, God is completely satisfied with what Jesus has done. That's the ultimate demonstration of steadfast, unchanging love. And I believe that is how our names came to be engraved on the hand of God. And even though Christ has done that for all of us, for all the world, yet not everyone is in Christ. There is a response of faith and trust that brings us to redemption, that brings us to forgiveness, that brings us into a walk in relationship with God. The third promise that God made, he said, your walls are continually before me. God is saying this to Israel. Your walls are continually before me. And I believe that's another way of saying, I will always keep all of my promises. <clears throat> the walls are about to be destroyed by Babylon. They are going to fall down. Your city is going to be destroyed. You are walking into a time of intense suffering as a nation of mine. But this suffering is not going to be your destiny. And even though these walls are going to be lying in heaps around the city, your walls are always before me. I always have on my mind restoration, 
the fulfillment of my promise to you. It will come. You will be restored. All of my promises will be fulfilled. While you're in captivity, it may look to you like I have forgotten you. I have forsaken you. I don't care about you. But all of this is just part of the process of bringing you back into the fulfillment of every promise that I've made. It may feel like God is punishing you. It may feel like he's walking away from you. But instead of allowing your mind to focus on that and dwell on that, bring your mind back to this, that this painful trial is a way of God keeping his promise to you. It's a way of God bringing confidence and trust in who he is. As I finish this morning, I want to leave you with just two questions. Are you today trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Is your name engraved in the master's hand? Have you come to Christ, depending on him, to forgive you through his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection? And if that's an uncertainty in your life, if you have questions about that, there are several people around here, pastors, other leaders of the church, who can sit down with you and walk you through what that means. The second question, are any of you this morning sitting here feeling like God has forgotten you? Are you going through difficult suffering and difficult to the point that it's hard to trust in the presence of God in your life or the promises of God? If that describes where you are this morning, then I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to listen to yourself right now. Resist the temptation to allow your circumstances to define who God is and what he's doing. And instead of doing that, search and study the scriptures. Find direct promises that God has revealed in his word that apply to your situation today, that explain for you who God is and what he's doing right now. This passage uh, is a good place to start. I just scratched the surface this morning, but I would encourage you, if this is a struggle for you today, I would encourage you to take some time and study this passage. Don't just read it as a devotion to feel better, but take some time to dig into it, to understand the pictures that are here, and then spend some time meditating on what this means to your situation, to your trial that you're enduring today. Would you pray with me? Father, today we are thankful that we can trust you. We're thankful that you have revealed to us who you are and what you're doing in the midst of trial and suffering. And I pray that you would use trial in our lives to increase our confidence, our trust in you. And Lord, I want to pray for anybody here today who's struggling with this, that you would surround them with your comfort, with confidence in you. Minister to them in their hearts today. Encourage all of us as we seek to follow you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.